Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fiscamall, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, broadcasting to you from my home office in the northeast corner of Durham, North Carolina. And this is the second half of the April 9th episode. It is the Law 140 section of that episode. Uh, So we are only talking about the law as it relates to politicians and their pandemic powers. There are no show notes. There is no news. There is no criminal justice fuckery. If you like that sort of stuff, uh, go to the prior episode to this one. We wanted to break off this Law 140 as its own standalone episode because given how much has been in the news about what powers politicians do or don't have to deal with a pandemic, I thought it would be easier if we had something standing by itself that you could share with people on Twitter uh, or wherever you happen to share stuff, Facebook, Snapchat, whatever. Uh, Just something that you could easily listen to to figure out what the law is, how it applies, and hopefully spread some knowledge because a lot of stuff that we have been seeing has been really, really dumb. Uh, But before we get into the details, if you have not already done so, please make sure to follow us on Twitter. The Twitter account is at Fiskamall. That's at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you'd like to leave us a written comment, you can do that on our website, Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you'd like to become one of our financial supporters, you can do that on Patreon at patreon.com slash Fisk. That's patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. So the topic for this Law 140 is basically what powers do politicians have when they are dealing with an epidemic, a pandemic, these types of issues like we are currently dealing with, uh, with the novel coronavirus or COVID-19, as the disease is called. Uh, And the answer is probably going to surprise you. They have a lot of powers that the Constitution actually allows. And the reason why that might be surprising is that we haven't had a truly invasive government for the public good in a long time. So, of course, you have issues of government overreach all the time. I mean, this entire podcast is about when the police happen to overreach. Uh, But the ability for the government to constitutionally limit what you can do has been baked in since the founding, but has not really been used all that often, especially over the past, you know, 20, 30 years, you've seen a great expansion of liberty in most cases compared to how things used to be. And the reason why it's been baked in since the beginning is because the government has dealt with pandemics repeatedly. You know, back in the day, you had tuberculosis, typhoid, scarlet fever, polio, yellow fever, cholera, uh, diphtheria, measles, although that's making a comeback, uh, whooping cough, a bunch of communicable diseases have been around America since the 1700s, probably before then. And when you were figuring out what structure the government was going to take, uh, a lot of this stuff was already baked in. So a few things to know before we get into the nitty gritty of it. First, this is focusing primarily on the theory. What is theoretical? Because the theory part matters. You know, a lot of times we focus on practical stuff, you know, how to practically avoid going to jail, how to practically get yourself found not guilty. But when you're dealing with constitutional arguments, it's the theory that matters because the theory ultimately is what the courts are deciding. And as we're going through that theory, it helps to think through how our government evolved. So start as a baseline with each individual is their own sovereign. You have sole political power. You are a nation unto yourself. 
And from that, of course, individuals come together to form a government to provide for common needs and objectives. So you give up part of your own personal sovereignty to bestow it to the government for that government to be a tool to do things for you. That middle step is basically where we were as a country immediately prior to the Constitution. So, of course, you have the the Revolution in 1776. We have the Articles of Confederation for a span of time. The Constitution itself was not ratified until, I think it was 87, if I remember correctly, 1787. So, during that span where you had the Articles of Confederation, you had a weak federal government. It existed, but not really. Each state was its own separate sovereign, existing because individuals had come together uh, and given up part of their sovereignty to the state. Now, yes, I know realistically the states were created because there was a monarchy who had absolute authority, etc., etc. I know that. Just bear with me as we deal with the theoretical constructs here. So as part of the ratification of the Constitution, those states then in turn gave up part of their power to bestow it on Washington. So the federal government has certain state powers that the states had themselves originally. Under the Articles of Confederation, those powers were given up. Uh, So what we like to say is that the federal government is one of limited and enumerated powers. And enumerated where? Well, that's a second rule of Fisk question. Again, the second rule of Fisk is that you always start at the source. In this case, you start at the federal constitution. And the federal government has its powers enumerated in the constitution. Article 1 lays out what powers Congress has. And there's a bunch in there encourage you to read it all because it's actually pretty, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Is it, I don't want to say articulate because it's not really articulate, but it's elegant how it's put together. I really like the federal constitution. Part of why I became so interested in constitutional law is because how our government is structured is actually really cool. You know, it's a bit unique, but how it's done, you know, the framers who put this together really were some of the smartest people that existed at the time, I would assume, because if they were idiots, they did a really good job as idiots. So I assume they were smart people. Uh, But one of the biggest grants of power to the federal government is it gives Congress the ability to, quote, regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with Indian tribes. That, of course, is known as the Commerce Clause. And then tied to that is the Necessary and Proper Clause. Congress has the power, quote, to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or any department or officer thereof. Now note, the Necessary and Proper Clause is not an independent power. It's contingent on applying to the other foregoing powers in the Constitution. The ability to regulate commerce, the ability to coin money, the ability to declare war, etc., etc., etc. There is no separate necessary and proper power. But if you have an enumeration of power in one of those lists of things that Congress is allowed to do, the necessary and proper clause basically gives you an extra umbrella of stuff enabling you to accomplish that objective. So when you combine the Commerce Clause with the Necessary and Proper Clause, it provides a tremendous amount of power to the federal government by law, totally constitutional, that has really been baked in from the beginning. Uh, So then state governments, they get everything that's left over, and we call that the general police power. Now, even though it's called police power, it's not focused on law enforcement. It does include that, but it also includes a wide array of other things. So laws governing marriage, laws governing wills and estates, laws governing the acquisition of real estate, basically all of the stuff 
that a state government could pass legislation on that is not limited by the Constitution falls under the general police power. So, and then you have those government powers, that divination, that split, is then further limited by certain portions of the Constitution. So in the case of the federal government, you see those limits in the Bill of Rights and some of the constitutional amendments. And then for state governments, those amendments apply to them as well. And then you also have actual segments of the main Constitution, Article 1, Section 10, that limit what states can do. So for example, states cannot coin their own money. They can't enact treaties, that sort of thing. Those prohibitions are in the main body of the Constitution. And then the Bill of Rights plus the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, a few others, um, relate to state power. So where the areas where the federal government has an enumerated power, that power is basically absolute as long as it doesn't violate some other section of the Constitution. And then for other areas, you have either concurrent jurisdiction, where both the federal and the state governments have different roles, or it's exclusively a state-level function. So you see that in the Tenth Amendment, where things not enumerated are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. So I don't want to go too deep into this, but go back to episode 56, where we have a Law 140 on Federalism Basics, where I talk a bit about this. And then I'll also include a link to our Twitter moment thread, where we did a Law 140 on due process basics, because due process matters as well. But the key point to remember is that when it comes to a pandemic response, dealing with pathogens and that sort of thing, this is a what we would call a concurrent jurisdiction situation, where both the federal and state governments have roles to play depending on what is being done. So because the Constitution gives Congress the power to regulate interstate commerce and to make necessary and proper laws to regulate interstate commerce, uh, Congress passed the Public Health Service Act. And that statute, we'll give you a link to it, provides a bunch of different things. But one of the key parts is it says, quote, the Surgeon General, with the approval of the Secretary, and in this case, that's the Secretary of Health and Human Services, is authorized to make and enforce such regulations as in his judgment are necessary to prevent the introduction, transmission, or spread of communicable diseases from foreign countries into the states or possessions or from one state or possession into any other state or possession. Uh, that law also authorizes the apprehension or detention of individuals who have a communicable disease as long as it's identified in an executive order issued by the president. And there's an executive order, 13295, that includes the latest version of those applicable diseases. Uh, and that executive order says, quote, based upon the recommendation of the Secretary of Health and Human Services in consultation with the Surgeon General and for the purpose of specifying certain communicable diseases for regulations providing for the apprehension, detention, or conditional release of individuals to prevent the introduction, transmission, or spread of suspected communicable diseases, the following communicable diseases are hereby specified specified pursuant to section 361b of the public health service act and it lists cholera diphtheria infectious tuberculosis plague smallpox yellow fever viral hemorrhagic fevers including lhasa marburg ebola crimean congo south american and others not yet isolated or named 
And then in subpart B, it says severe acute respiratory syndromes, which are diseases that are associated with fever and signs and symptoms of pneumonia or other respiratory illness are capable of being transmitted from person to person and that either are causing or have the potential to cause a pandemic or upon infection are highly likely to cause mortality or serious morbidity if not properly controlled. This subsection does not apply to influenza. So that is the SARS acronym, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. You probably recognize that from prior pandemics. Uh, the Obama administration modified that original executive order, which had SARS as like a single thing, to now make it SARS is plural to cover other stuff like the coronavirus. So Trump didn't even have to do anything with that. If someone has that, the federal government under the Public Health Service Act has the ability to quarantine or detain someone who happens to have it. Uh, the Public Health Service Act also authorizes the federal government to prohibit entry into the country from anyone who's infected, including citizens, or if they enter, also allows them to have them detained and quarantined until they're no longer infectious. It also allows the federal government to detain and quarantine people who are traveling from one state to another if they're infected. Uh, the law says, quote, those persons may be detained for such time and in such manner as may be reasonably necessary. Uh, so the regulations that implement the Public Health Service Act are in two separate parts of the Code of Federal Regulations. Part 70 covers interstate travel, and then Part 71 covers foreign arrivals. There's also a section that basically allows a federal takeover if local health people aren't doing what they're supposed to do. It allows the director of the CDC to take measures as may be necessary to prevent the spread of a communicable disease from one state or possession to any other state or possession if he determines that measures taken by local health authorities are inadequate to prevent the spread of the disease. Uh, so basically criminal sanctions are provided in case you violate these federal regulations. So they're under Section 361 of the Public Health Services Act. And violation of a federal quarantine or isolation order is a federal misdemeanor. And you also get subjected to a fine of up to $100,000, one year in jail, or both. And then if there are organizational violations, they are subject to fines of up to $200,000 per event. And then federal district courts can issue injunctions, basically enjoining individuals and organizations from violating CDC quarantine regulations. So that is pretty much it as far as the federal power goes. The bulk of it is state stuff. It is part of that general police power that we talked about. So every state has the ability to pass laws governing the quarantine and detention of people who are infected, subject to certain constitutional limits like the right to due process. That's why I say go back and listen to that due process. Uh, sorry, go read that Twitter thread on due process. Basically, what processes do varies widely based on the circumstances. But most of the time, all that is required is that you get notice of what you're being deprived of and the reason for it. And you have an opportunity to be heard by an impartial decision maker. Now, when that notice has to be provided, when that opportunity to be heard has to happen, varies pretty dramatically. So there is no fixed point for it. Uh, so, for example, if you are driving under the influence, they can take your license away right away. You get notice in the form of the criminal charges, but your chance to be heard doesn't happen until much later. So you are not able to drive before you've had a chance to be heard. So you can have this uh, pre-taking uh, opportunity to be heard taken away, basically. It could be they take it first and they give you the opportunity to be heard later. 
And then for other stuff, you have to be heard ahead of time. So one of the cases we talked about in that Twitter thread related to welfare benefits, because indigent people are reliant on those welfare benefits, they can't be taken away unless you have an opportunity to be heard first, because if you take it away, you end up suffering irreparable harm. So key points to know with due process, notice of the basis for the deprivation, opportunity to be heard before a neutral decision maker. That's pretty much it. That is all that you're entitled to under federal constitutional law, what the 5th and 14th Amendments provide, and that is what is applicable to the states as well. Uh, So to give you some examples, here in North Carolina, uh, we have statutes specifically governing tuberculosis. If you happen to have infectious tuberculosis, the government can force you into quarantine. And the, the due process piece of it is that the statute provides that after 30 days, the order goes away, or if it's renewed, you have a chance to contest it in court. So you have the, the notice in the form of you're being put in quarantine. So they're saying you got tuberculosis, you're going to be isolated. Uh, and then the opportunity to be heard before a neutral decision maker is that you get to sue in court if the order doesn't go away. Uh, so for emergencies like this with the coronavirus pandemic, we have a set of laws called the Emergency Management Act. It is an entire chapter of our uh, general statutes. And basically, it lays out how a disaster is declared and provides categorization of the type of disaster, how severe it is, and how long disasters last without some form of intervention by either the legislature or the courts. Then based on that, based on who declares the disaster, what type it is, how long it lasts, the statutes give the governor certain powers automatically that normally the governor does not have. And then in addition, if there are certain types of disasters, There is a separate set of even broader powers that the governor gets if the Council of State, which is our elected executive branch officers, so the secretary of, fuck if I know, we have a lot of weird departments in North Carolina, but like the secretary of agriculture, the secretary of labor, lieutenant governor, all these folks have a vote as part of the Council of State. And if the Council of State agrees with the governor's proposal, the governor gets to use these enhanced powers in addition to the other enhanced powers he gets automatically. Uh, So... That is the structure in North Carolina. Some other states have similar setups. There's actually a model set of emergency management statutes that get passed around. It's up to a state to decide if they want to enact it or not, and if they do, what kind of conditions they want to put in. And then, of course, each state is also limited by the terms of its own state constitution. So some states have what are called home rule amendments, which gives to local governments, to cities and towns, certain powers. And that limits what the state can impose upon them. North Carolina, we don't have that. There is no home rule thing. You know, if the General Assembly decided they wanted to abolish the city of Durham tomorrow, they could do that because cities and towns have no constitutional right to exist. Uh, The states have a constitutional right to exist under the federal constitution, and then it is up to each individual state to decide if they want to extend that constitutional right under their own constitution to cities and towns. Uh, but without a home rule amendment, that right does not exist. So just kind of be aware of that. I know I'm, I'm going a bit into the weeds, but there are a lot of different moving parts here. Uh, so like with the public health regulations, typically the state health orders are enforced by criminal prosecution if you violate them or going to court to get an injunction to stop you from doing a thing. And then if you violate that court order, you get held in contempt of court. Uh, and then if you happen to be one of those people 
who gets detained. You're quarantined, you're isolated. Typically, your way of challenging that detention is to either file in state or federal court what is called a writ of habeas corpus. So that is known as the Great Writ. Basically, it is a way of trying to challenge the basis for your detention. And oftentimes, it is used to argue that the order that has been issued or the regulations that have been issued are themselves unconstitutional. That is how you do it. Uh, so that is kind of the broad umbrella, the constellation, if you will, of how the laws work. And then, of course, the question is, well, what kind of court cases do we have confirming that what I'm telling you is true? And I have done some research to give you those so you are aware of them. Now, as a heads up, most of these are Supreme Court cases. I have not gone through all of the different circuit courts of appeals because there's a lot of parts to this that you're going to realize fairly quickly is a bit dense and it's tough to find anything on point because this is a once in a hundred years thing. We don't really deal with this before. And of course, the Public Health Services Act did not exist back when the Spanish flu happened. Uh, so I could not find any Supreme Court cases specifically on the constitutionality of the PHSA itself. There are several dealing with aspects of it. So the uh, circuit courts have upheld FDA regulations on adulterated substances. They have upheld COBRA health insurance coverage, etc., etc., all parts of the PHSA, different pieces. Uh, but some things that will probably come into play if it happens uh, is a piece of what we call obiter dictum, basically something that is outside of the core holding but is nonetheless persuasive to future courts uh, in a Supreme Court case called Zemmel versus Rusk. Now, this was a 1965 decision, and the only reason I know of it is because when I did moot court in law school, this was one of the cases that I had. It dealt with whether or not the Secretary of State could prohibit travel to Cuba back during the Cold War. And one of the pieces that the Supreme Court included in their opinion said, quote, the right to travel within the United States is, of course, also constitutionally protected. But that freedom does not mean that areas ravaged by flood, fire, or pestilence cannot be quarantined when it can be demonstrated that unlimited travel to the area would directly and materially interfere with the safety and welfare of the area or the nation as a whole. That is the only case that I could find that referenced the federal power to do anything in a pandemic. Now, again, I've not gone through all of these circuit courts of appeals. I definitely didn't go through the federal district courts because there's a lot of those. Um, but there's nothing by the Supreme Court that says the Supreme Court has this power. But it would likely be upheld based on those types of things like you see in Rusk and the fact that other pieces of the PHA, PHSA have already been upheld as well. Now, when we're dealing with state power, that's entirely different. The Supreme Court has repeatedly weighed in on what states can do to quarantine, isolate, deal with infections, and it has basically upheld them pretty much all the time and going back to the very beginning of the country. So let's start with Gibbons versus Ogden. Now, if you recognize that court case, that is because either one, you learned about it in school because it is a seminal case. Uh, or we also talked about it on this podcast back in episode 45 about the Dormant Commerce Clause. Now, Gibbons v. Ogden was intended to be a case relating to interstate navigation, the waterways between New York and New Jersey, and whether or not Congress had the ability 
to regulate the licensing scheme there uh, because it dealt with, in the magic languages, the channels and instrumentalities of commerce. You know, we're already able to regulate the roads. Can we also regulate the waterways, basically? And a few things to know is that this was decided in 1824, and a majority of the founding fathers were still alive when this happened. So Jefferson, John Adams, John Jay, James Madison, they were still around when this opinion came down. Of course, Hamilton, Franklin, and Washington were all dead, but the people who helped architect the Constitution, who knew what they intended powers they intended for Congress to have, uh, they were still alive and kicking. And what the Supreme Court said in Gibbons versus Ogden was that, yes, Congress had the power to regulate this particular aspect of this particular dispute, but they also talked a bit about state powers to deal with health and inspections and how those happened to burden interstate commerce and where the line was drawn, basically. So as part of that opinion, the Supreme Court said, quote, that inspection laws may have a remote and considerable influence on commerce will not be denied, but that a power to regulate commerce is the source from which the right to pass them is derived cannot be admitted. The object of inspection laws is to improve the quality of articles produced by the labor of a country to fit them for exportation or it may be for domestic use. They act upon the subject before it becomes an article of foreign commerce or of commerce among the states and prepare it for that purpose. They form a portion of that immense mass of legislation which embraces everything within the territory of a state not surrendered to the general government all which can be most advantageously exercised by the states themselves. I'm going to note the general government, capital G general, is a reference to the federal government. They called it the general government back then. Uh, where did I, I lost my place. Here we go. It continues. Quote, inspection laws, quarantine laws, health laws of every description, as well as laws of for regulating the internal commerce of a state and those which respect turnpike roads, ferries, etc., are component parts of this mass. No direct general power over these subjects is granted to Congress, and consequently, they remain subject to state legislation. If the legislative power of the union can reach them, it must be for national purposes. It must be where the power is expressly given for a special purpose or is clearly incidental to some power which is expressly given. Now, again, that's a reference to the necessary and proper clause there. Not an independent grant of power, but applies to the pre-mentioned powers in the Constitution. So as in Gibbons v. Ogden, back during the days of the founding, you have the Supreme Court affirming that the state power is very broad, and that the federal power is limited on issues that only have kind of an interstate character to them. Uh, so in 1902, in a 7-2 to decision, and I'm going to butcher the fuck out of the pronunciation of this, it's Compagnie Française de Navigation à Vapour versus the Louisiana State Board of Health. Basically, you had a challenge to a Louisiana statute dealing with uh, quarantines and such. And the company involved here tried to challenge the law and its uh, implementation, arguing both the law is facially unconstitutional and it was unconstitutional as applied. We didn't use these terms for it back then, but that's basically what it was. And the Supreme Court upheld it and basically said that uh, this was a proper exercise of the police power. 
So a shipping company had challenged an interpretation of a state statute that conferred upon the State Board of Health the authority to exclude healthy persons, whether they came from without or within the state, from a geographic area that was infested with disease. The company alleged that the statute, as it had been interpreted, interfered with interstate commerce and thus was unconstitutional, and the court said no. And from that decision, the court said, quote, that from an early day, the power of the states to enact and enforce quarantine laws for the safety and the protection of the health of their inhabitants has been recognized by Congress is beyond question. That until Congress has exercised its power on the subject, such state quarantine laws and state laws for the purposes of preventing, eradicating, or controlling the spread of contagious or infectious diseases are not repugnant to the Constitution of the United States, although their operation affects interstate or foreign commerce, is not an open question. We do not think it necessary to enter into the inquiry whether, notwithstanding this, it is to be classed among those police powers which were retained by the states as exclusively their own, and therefore not ceded to Congress. For, while it may be a police power, in the sense that all provisions for the health, comfort, and security of the citizens are police regulations, and an exercise of the police power, it has been said more than once in this court that even where such powers are so exercised as to come within the domain of federal authority, as defined by the Constitution, the latter must prevail. So basically, they upheld everything, but didn't delve into whether this is considered a police power or not, because Congress, if they chose to regulate it in an interstate commerce basis, they could. So that was in 1902. And then just three years later, in 1905, you have Jacobson versus Massachusetts. Now, at this point, a vaccine has come out for smallpox, and the state of Massachusetts has decided that you could be forced, uh, you know, at gunpoint to take this particular vaccine. And Jacobson filed suit, saying this is not fair. I'm, you know, this violates my rights. And the Supreme Court said, LOL, go fuck yourself. And from that case, the court said, quote, The authority of the state to enact this statute is to be referred to what is commonly called the police power, a power which the state did not surrender when becoming a member of the Union under the Constitution. Although this court has refrained from any attempt to define the limits of that power, yet it has distinctly recognized the authority of a state to enact quarantine laws and, subquote, health laws of every description. Indeed, all laws that relate to matters completely within its territory, and which do not, by their necessary operation, affect the people of other states. According to settled principles, the police power of a state must be held to embrace at least such reasonable regulations established directly by legislative enactment, as well as will protect the public health and the public safety. We come then to inquire whether any right given or secured by the Constitution is invaded by the statute here as interpreted by the state court. The defendant insists that his liberty is invaded when the state subjects him to fine or imprisonment for neglecting or refusing to submit to vaccination, that a compulsory vaccination law is unreasonable, arbitrary, and oppressive, and therefore hostile to the inherent right of every free man to care for his own body and health in such way as to him seems best, and that the execution of such a law against one who objects to vaccination, no matter for what reason, is nothing short of an assault upon his person. But the liberty secured by the Constitution of the United States to every person within its jurisdiction does not import an absolute right in each person to be, at all times and in all circumstances, wholly freed from restraint. 
There are manifold restraints to which every person is necessarily subject for the common good. On any other basis, organized society could not exist with safety to its members. Society based on the rule that each one is a law unto himself would soon be confronted with disorder and anarchy. Real liberty for all could not exist under the operation of a principle which recognizes the right of each individual person to use his own, whether in respect of his person or his property, regardless of the injury that may be done to others. Applying these principles to the present case, it is to be observed that the legislature of Massachusetts required the inhabitants of a city or town to be vaccinated only when, in the opinion of the Board of Health, that was necessary to the public health or the public safety. To invest such a body with authority over such matters was not an unusual, nor an unreasonable, nor arbitrary requirement. Upon the principle of self-defense, of paramount necessity, a community has the right to protect itself against an epidemic of disease which threatens the safety of its members. So we had that. You had uh, in 1926 the case of Oregon-Washington Railroad. No, I'm sorry. It's Oregon-Washington Rail and Navigation Company against the state of Washington. And this dealt with quarantine-related regulations to prevent the spread of the alfalfa weevil, which was a bug that apparently devastated some of the uh, agricultural crops. And even though it impacted commerce, the Supreme Court upheld it anyway. Uh, And the court there wrote, quote, In the absence of any action taken by Congress on the subject matter, it is well settled that a state and the exercise of its police power may establish quarantines against human beings or animals or plants, the coming in of which may expose the inhabitants or the stock or the trees, plants or growing crops to disease, injury or destruction thereby. And this in spite of the fact that such quarantines necessarily affect interstate commerce. So there again, you had the court upheld something that even though it impacted interstate commerce, it was still considered part of the general police powers of the state. Now, those types of things are not without limitation. So there have been Supreme Court cases that limit what states can do, but they're fairly narrow in scope. So for example, in 1941, you had the case of Edwards versus California, and this dealt with what were called anti-Oki laws. So basically you're in the middle of the Great Depression, a lot of people in farm country are broke, and they're moving to bigger states to try and find work. So a lot of states basically passed laws saying that if you brought a poor person here, you could go to jail. As crazy as that sounds to us nowadays, that was actually the law back in the 30s and 40s. So in that particular case, and I'm just going to read from you snippets of the opinion, uh, the court writes, quote, In justice court, a complaint was filed against the appellant under Section 2615 of the Welfare and Institutions Code of California which provides, subquote, every person, firm, or corporation, or officer, or agent thereof that brings or assists in bringing into the state any indigent person who is not a resident of the state, knowing him to be an indigent person, is guilty of a misdemeanor. Now, I'm going to summarize a lot of the other stuff. Basically, Edwards transported his wife's brother from Texas to California. The brother had been laid off, couldn't find work. Uh, came to California, brought him here, and after the guy got here, he had applied for welfare and so on. Uh, So they actually found Edwards, charged him. He was convicted. He was sentenced to a year in jail. That suspension was, uh, that jail sentence was suspended as he was appealing. But this was an actual law that he actually got convicted of. And Edwards challenged it on the basis that it violated what we call the Dormant Commerce Clause. And if you don't remember that phrase, go to episode 45, listen to the Law 140 on that. 
uh, and that it violated the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause as well. And what the court said was that, yes, it violates the Dormant Commerce Clause. They did not get into the equal protection piece that was addressed by the concurrence, uh, but they said outright that it violated the Dormant Commerce Clause. And what they said there is, quote, Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution delegates to the Congress the authority to regulate interstate commerce. And it is settled beyond question that the transportation of persons is commerce within the meaning of that provision. It is nevertheless true that the states are not wholly precluded from exercising their police power in matters of local concern, even though they may thereby affect interstate commerce. The issue presented in this case, therefore, is whether the prohibition embodied in Section 2615 against the bringing or transportation of indigent persons into California is within the police power of that state. We think that it is not, and hold that it is an unconstitutional barrier to interstate commerce. The grave and perplexing social and economic dislocation which this statute reflects is a matter of common knowledge and concern. We are not unmindful of it. We appreciate that the spectacle of large segments of our population constantly on the move has given rise to urgent demands upon the ingenuity of government. The state asserts that the huge influx of migrants into California in recent years has resulted in problems of health, morals, and especially finance, the proportions of which are staggering. It is not for us to say that this is not true. We have repeatedly and recently affirmed, and we now reaffirm, that we do not conceive it our function to pass upon the wisdom, need, or appropriateness of the legislative efforts of the states to solve such difficulties. But this does not mean that there are no boundaries to the permissible area of state legislative activity. There are, and none is more certain than the prohibition against attempts on the part of any single state to isolate itself from difficulties common to all of them by restraining the transportation of persons and property across its borders. So there's a limit there. A state government cannot block you from coming in because there happens to be a pandemic involved. Uh, similarly, in O'Connor versus Donaldson in 1975, you're dealing with what due process is required as part of a quarantine order. And in this case, there was a unanimous decision about whether or not this particular petitioner who was mentally ill allegedly uh, could be released. And then there was a separate concurrence from Justice Berger, Chief Justice Berger. Uh, so I'm going to read you snippets from both. So in the main part of O'Connor v. Donaldson, the court writes, quote, We need not decide whether, when, or by what procedures a mentally ill person may be confined by the state on any of the grounds which, under contemporary statutes, are generally advanced to justify involuntary confinement of such a person to prevent injury to the public, to ensure his own survival or safety, or to alleviate or cure his illness. A finding of mental illness alone cannot justify a state's locking a person up against his will and keeping him indefinitely in simple custodial confinement. Assuming that that term can be given a reasonably precise content and that the mentally ill can be identified with reasonable accuracy, there is still no constitutional basis for confining such persons involuntarily if they are dangerous to no one and can live safely in freedom." So that basically sets the modern standard now where we try to have people with mental health issues, you know, home as long as they're not a danger to themselves or others. But as part of the concurrence, Chief Justice Warren Berger writes, quote, there can be little doubt that in the exercise of its police power, a state may confine individuals solely to protect society from the dangers of significant antisocial acts or communicable disease. So if you couldn't tell, from the list of these cases that I've gone through, we'll give you links to all of them in the show notes. A state's power 
to quarantine people or parts of the state is very broad. There's very little the federal government can do to prevent it. The governors, the legislatures have a tremendous amount of authority there. Uh, and it's something that we're not accustomed to seeing. You know, this is the first pandemic in the social media age. H1N1, SARS, that sort of thing. Yes, they existed when we still had Facebook, but you didn't have cell phone cameras in everyone's hand. You didn't have Twitter where you could get stuff in real time. You didn't have so many people using those services. This is the first social media pandemic. And you're going to see exercises of government power more than we've seen before. And it's going to be upheld. So to answer some specific questions that have come up, uh, you know, can the president quarantine entire states? That was something that had been mentioned where uh, Trump had talked about quarantining New York and New Jersey. The answer to there is probably not. So the quarantine section of the Public Health Services Act, which again, remember, is the only section of federal law that allows the federal government to act during pandemics. It's written to apply to individuals. You know, that's a quote, quote individuals. The federal government can't seal off entire states unless it could somehow show that every individual in those states happens to be infected. Now, if they could somehow do that, okay, maybe. But it's just not something that lawfully they could do. And then also from a practical standpoint, you know, the CDC doesn't have the staff to, to manage a quarantine like that. You would need the military. And there are restrictions on using the military for domestic law enforcement. It's called the Posse Comitatus Act. It would require Congress to affirmatively say, yes, the military is allowed to quarantine these states, which would create a whole separate shit show. Uh, so no, the president cannot quarantine entire states unless somehow they could show that every single person in those states had been infected with the coronavirus. Uh, can a state block people? from places like New York from coming in. You saw this in Texas and in Florida and so on. Answer to that is no. Edwards versus California makes that clear. A state cannot seal itself off when it is dealing with problems common to all states. Now, instead of trying to block you from coming in, could they instead say you have to answer additional questions or you have to self-quarantine? And the answer there is maybe. So this aspect of it isn't really tested. And the, the issue of answering questions, the burden there is sufficiently slight that it would probably survive a dormant commerce clause challenge. The question is whether it violates the equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment. And we've covered the equal protection clause before. Basically, you're dealing with levels of scrutiny in the classification process. So if the government makes classes using what's called a suspect class, so race, national origin, religion, alienage, that sort of thing. It is subject to what's called strict scrutiny review. The, the designation is presumptively invalid unless the government can show that it serves a compelling state interest and is narrowly tailored to achieve that interest. So if you're dealing with gender, you get kind of this intermediate scrutiny. And then if you're dealing with all other classifications, you're dealing with rational basis scrutiny where it's going to be upheld as long, it is, as long as it is rationally related to a legitimate state interest. So there is a possibility that being told you have to self-quarantine if you come in from out of state uh, would survive a dormant commerce clause challenge and an equal protection clause challenge. And you would basically be trying to make the argument that the quarantine order itself is unconstitutional because, you know, of however you answer the particular questions. But being forced to pull to the side of the road and answer questions will probably be okay. Uh, can a state block an airplane or a cruise ship from landing or docking? 
You know, the answer there is no. Immigration is exclusively in the realm of federal government that includes foreign or out-of-state arrivals. The catch there, of course, is dealing with the practical aspects of it. In order to get off the ship, you'd have to sue in court and have an injunction entered blocking the state from stopping you from coming in. And then the challenge, of course, is figuring out can you get access to a lawyer and file the suit from the ship or the airplane, wherever you happen to be, and can you get that heard in a time frame where it would matter? You know, if it takes 14 days for this, the government to hear the case and the quarantine itself is only 14 days, you end up with the issue of not really getting anywhere. So there's an issue with the, uh, the practicalities of it. Um, but as far as the theory of it goes, no, a state cannot block a ship from docking, cannot stop an airplane from landing. That is the federal government's job. Can the president shut down the entire country? Can you do a national stay-at-home order? Uh, the answer there is no, at least not right now. You know, the Congress could pass legislation using its authority to govern interstate commerce and the Necessary and Proper Clause, where they probably could order that and it would survive a challenge. But those laws don't exist now, and absent more legislation, they would not exist in the future. Uh, can the president force states to reopen? That has been an ongoing fear among folks, as you see kind of these you know, red state governors saying they're looking to the federal government for guidance and so on. And the answer there is no. There is no federal law that allows the president to override state laws relating to this. If there is a state quarantine power, you know, a stay-at-home order pursuant to North Carolina's Emergency Management Act or whatever, the federal government is completely powerless to undo that because it is part of the plenary powers, the state general police powers that have been recognized since the founding as something that the states possess. The president just simply doesn't have the power to do it. In that case, the Congress doesn't have the power to do it. You know, if the Congress wanted to, if they wanted to force states to reopen that are still currently closed, the way they would do that would be either trying to limit funding if you don't reopen or get additional funding if you do reopen. And you'd be amazed how quickly state governments will jump to get federal tax money. Uh, but from the standpoint of general powers, there's nothing that the federal government can do to force a state under a stay-at-home order to stop being under a stay-at-home order, stay order. That is the role of the state legislators, the state governors, to make that stuff happen. Uh, one of the questions I got was, what about intrastate travel? So, for example, here in North Carolina, Dare County has blocked non-Dare County residents from coming in. Can one part of the state stop people from other parts of the state from entering into that? Uh, and the short answer is, I don't know. That is going to depend on the state's specific constitution and the state's specific statutes. There probably wouldn't be any federal stuff there. Uh, so it would not be a, a dormant commerce clause challenge because it doesn't involve interstate transportation. It is involving intrastate transportation. And if there's an equal protection challenge under the 14th Amendment, it is also going to be done under rational basis review, whether it is legitimately related to a rational governmental interest. Uh, but you always have to remember that localities do not have a constitutional right to exist. So a state constitution or state statutes could restrict what they can do. Uh, and conversely, if that state constitution has a home rule clause, sometimes that limits what the state can do to them. Uh, but that's going to be a state-by-state -state designation. My guess is here in North Carolina, uh, that would probably be upheld. Uh, but again, it's something where I just, I don't know because we've never dealt with this before and we're dealing with some very exotic questions of law and interpretation. Uh, so folks, that is the Law 140 
on politicians, pandemic powers. Moral of the story is that your state governors and your state legislators have immense authority that they can wield without violating the Constitution. You're probably not used to that because we've not dealt with it before. But if it's something where you think you can challenge that successfully in court, you are probably going to be sorely disappointed. Um, so just want to make sure you had that information available. Please feel free to share it with your friends. As always, if you liked it, please let us know. If you didn't like it, let us know that too. Leave us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher. Uh, I don't even know what services we're on. We've been so sporadic with recording. Uh, whatever services, where you happen to get this, Spotify, a few others. Leave us a rating, a written review. We'd appreciate it. Follow us on Twitter. Leave us a comment there or on our site. Uh, and always on behalf of myself and Mike, the sound guy, thank you for listening. Hope you'll have a blessed week. Stay at home, stay healthy, wash your hands, et cetera, et cetera. And we will talk to you on Monday. Oh, and happy Easter for those of you who celebrate. I realize that that is coming up. I think Passover is happening too. I, I've not been up on the, the uh, religious holidays for anybody. I actually did not know that Easter was this Sunday uh, until just a few minutes ago. So uh, happy Easter, Passover, whatever, for those of you who celebrate those things. And we will be back on Monday. Take care. Thank you.